Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 60. If you're visiting Christ Church today, my name's Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers, and we're glad you're with us. We're glad you're worshiping Jesus, and we feel very honored that you would worship him with us, and so we're glad you joined us here, whether you're from visiting out of town or you're from the area. Uh, We just want you to be welcome, and uh, we we do appreciate seeing you here today. Uh, We want to tell you where we've been recently so that you can connect with where we're going today, because I'm going to be using a non-traditional Easter text, and you'll understand why in just a few moments. But what if I could offer you hope, joy, love, and power today? What would you pay for that? If I could tell you that there is, uh, what would it be worth to you if I could say, I could give you inexhaustible hope, nothing could take it from you. Or I could give you a joy that brought you no shame. Having it and experiencing it would be a pleasure rather than something you had to hide from people knowing about it. What if I could offer you a love that sought only your good and knew exactly what was for your good? What if I could offer you a power that fulfilled every promise you ever dreamed could possibly be? What would that be worth to you? What would you expend to have those things? That's the question that the resurrection, believe it or not, answers. And what if I told you that the answer to those things, the person who could give you those is not me, it's not a church, it's not a church brand, but it's Jesus and only Jesus. How would you respond to that? See, we've been studying, if you're visiting, we've been studying through the Gospels. We've taken Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and to the best of our ability, we've created a chronological timeline of Jesus' life. And we've been studying this since November of 2016. And we're going to continue to study through the life of Jesus until we have exhausted each and every verse, and we have processed what he's teaching us about himself and about ourselves. And where we are and have been for the last few weeks, for over a month now, is in John chapter 6. It's a very prominent chapter to understand what belief is. And we'll be concluding this chapter this morning on Easter Sunday. So let me tell you where we've been so you know where we are. And if you know where we are, you can go with us in these next few steps. Uh, There was a crowd of 5,000 men and family members that gathered around Jesus one day and he fed them. He took a little boy sack lunch, he took some fish and some loaves, and he fed the 5,000. And then he went up into a mountain to pray. He put his disciples on a boat and he sent them across the Sea of Galilee. And he said, I'll meet you on the other side. And while they were on the sea, on the lake, a big storm blew up and it was an intense storm. Jesus came down off the mountain. He walked across the water, found them uh, on the lake, walked right to them. And then he rescued them and took them safely to shore. When they got to the shore the next morning, there was a large crowd that had gathered around him. And this crowd had seen the disciples get in the boat. They hadn't seen Jesus get in the boat. So they were really amazed that he was there and that he had fed them the day before and they wanted him to feed them something and Jesus told them no. In the crowd that day were three distinct mini crowds, if you will. The largest part of the crowd were people who didn't understand who Jesus was. And Jesus said, you want me to feed you, but I'm going to tell you no because I want to give you something more long-lasting. And he challenged that their belief would not just be in what he could do, but he challenged them to believe in who he was. And then there was a smaller crowd. They went into a synagogue, a, a, Jewish, uh, a local Jewish worship house. They went into the synagogue, and that crowd got smaller because not everybody would have been welcomed in. And this was a crowd who didn't know, or the first crowd didn't know who he was. 
The second crowd should have known who he was. They were the religious leaders. And Jesus said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they were troubled by this. And Jesus told them that you need to believe by choosing to respond to me as your only satisfaction. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they were angered by this. And then we get to our text today, and the crowd gets even smaller. And you'll see why in just a few moments. And Jesus begins to talk to people who did know who he was, the disciples. So let's begin reading in verse 60. On hearing it, when Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be a part of my kingdom. Pretty graphic illustration of consuming Jesus as being the thing that that allows us to have life. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? You see, many in the crowd would walk away from Jesus that day. Some uh, scholarship that I've read estimates there were likely over 7,000 people, 7,000 men and family members. It could have been a crowd of upward of 15,000 people. We don't know. We know it was roughly at least 7,000 people were gathered around him that day when he was teaching. And he told them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't follow me. And the crowd began to walk away from him. If we listen to Jesus' teachings, and we have been since November of 16, if we listen to Jesus' teachings, we're going to understand this. He is trying to tell us That discipleship is not about whether you start following him. Discipleship is about whether you're willing to finish with following him. Because many people will start on the path of discipleship, but very few, according to Jesus, will pay the price to follow him all the way to conclusion. All the way back in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus ended that great sermon with an illustration of two men who built homes. One built on the sand and one built on the rock, and only one of those homes survived life. The one built on the rock could sustain what, the, what life does to it. The one on the sand was washed away. He also told the parable of a man casting seed on four different kinds of soil. All four soils took the seed, but only one produced fruit. And producing fruit is what soil is supposed to do when a seed enters it. Jesus used that as an illustration of discipleship that we've talked about in the past. That not everybody who begins to follow Jesus will choose to keep following Jesus all the way to the end. And that, by definition, is what a disciple does. See, belief is an interaction between you and Jesus. To believe, to believe that he is who he says he is, to believe that he alone can satisfy, to believe in that is to seek, trust, and obey Jesus as if your life depended on it. Because it does. And this is what we're discovering with Jesus. Jesus does offend a lot of people. In fact, I'm going to, Pose two big questions, and, and they're simply this. The, the first question I'm going to pose this morning is, why do people choose not to stay with Jesus? Why do some people start following him and then walk away? And the second question is, why should you stay? And if we look at those two big questions, we're going to view those by looking at the fact that Jesus asked his audience that day three questions, the same questions I want to ask us. So why not stay with Jesus? Why do people choose not to do this? Why do some people realize he's the son of the living God, confess him as the son of the living God, and then ultimately walk away as if that doesn't matter anymore. Jesus asked the crowd that day as it got smaller and smaller and smaller and more people walked away from him. He said, does this offend you? When I tell you that I'm the bread from heaven, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be a part of my kingdom. Unless you digest me, unless I become the source of your strength in your life, does that offend you? And the answer is yes. 
If, if we're truthful, Jesus is offensive, not because what he says is, is so rough and so mean and, and, and so provocative. No, the reason Jesus offends us is because we like to be our own God. We like to take care of our own problems, and when we can't, then we'll call in a bigger God to help us out. So the answer is, does this offend you? Yes. Why? Because Jesus is not easy to live with because he's always right. And that's hard. Do you live, don't point, but do you live with someone who's always right? And you know how hard that is. Now, if you're the person who's always right, feel sorry for your partner because they're like, it's horrible. But when you live with Jesus and he's always right, it means when you and Jesus disagree, who's wrong? I am. And that's why sometimes Jesus offends. Not because he's not telling us truth. We just don't like the truth he's telling us. You see, his identity is not up for revision. Jesus is not going to change who he is because you're uncomfortable with it. He's going to reveal who he is so that you become uncomfortable with you and allow him to change you. You see, for Jesus to do what he needs to do in us, we have to abandon our own self-sufficiency. We have to climb off the throne of acting like mini-God on internship. And we need to start letting the real God sit in his throne and allow the real God to rule over each and everything we do. And so Jesus is revealing himself. So he asks him the question, does this offend you? And the answer is, it's okay for us in church to say, sometimes Jesus offends us because I'm sitting in his spot. The second question he asks is actually found in verse 62, and let's read through 66. What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life, yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. There's several things I I can point out here. Notice that it said disciples stopped following him, not the crowd. The, The crowd who didn't know who he was was still wondering who he was. The crowd who should have known who he was turned their back on him because he didn't meet their expectations. But the crowd who did know who he was, even some of them walked away and they had more evidence than any other parts of the crowd. But they still walked away. The second question Jesus asks is, what if I am who I say I am? The first question was, does this offend you? The second question was, what if I prove to you that I'm exactly who I just told you I was that offended you? What if I reveal to you that I am God What if I reveal to you by ascending back to my father, what if all these things that he said he could do, he did? The reason we celebrate the resurrection on Easter morning is because he did ascend back to the father after coming out of the tomb. What did he prove to us? I never lied to you. I revealed who I was. Believe in that. Allow that to satisfy you and find life. Without that, we'll never find life. Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, I don't know about you, but I can interpret it this way. Maybe you've been in one of those relationships where you've been in a relationship with a jealous boyfriend or a jealous girlfriend. You know, the kind who said, if you're going to date me, then you can't talk to anyone else ever. I need to see what's on your phone. Why is she texting you? Why did you get an email? You know, the, the stuff that happens in junior high and high school that unfortunately doesn't stop for some of us when we become adults. Learning how to be in a relationship that's safe and healthy and respectful. And for some of us, if we're not careful, we turn Jesus into that jealous sixth grade girl who 
He's like, who are you talking to? Why are you talking to them? Why are they talking to you? I want you to only focus on me, nobody else, as if Jesus were threatened by your attention to something else. What Jesus says is, I'm going to let you have all the relationships you want in life, but until you realize how unsatisfying they are and I'm the only thing that truly can meet your needs. That's why Jesus said, turn your attention on me and all those other things will prove to be insignificant, temporary at best. And so that's the challenge of the text. Is Jesus enough for us or is he one of many other options we like to have available to us to keep us satisfied? He's telling us, investigate me. See what I'm offering you. Experience me. And, and, and don't try to experience me in the midst of all the other things you're trying to experience. Let me be your God. Let me provide for you. Let me redeem you. Let me serve you and love you and heal you. But Jesus says, you can't have those things for me if you're trying to find them from everything else from what you eat and what you drink and who you hang out with and how much money you make and how much money you spend and what possessions you have. Jesus said, those will never satisfy you. They may get you through a day. They won't get you through a life. He said, I'm the only thing that can get you through a life. That's why he said, my words are spirit and life. He just can't be our teacher. He just can't be our advisor because he's greater than that. And if, he, if that's all we make him, then we're being taught other things and advised in other ways. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the author of this particular letter to the Jewish Christians, he said, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Diligently seek him. Not occasionally, not sporadically, not seasonally, but those who each and every day allow Jesus to be their satisfaction. So why do people walk away from Jesus? Well, if you look at scripture and his interactions with people, you find several reasons. First of all, many don't stick with Jesus because they realize what he's asking of them. And at least they're intellectually honest. And their response is, I don't give anybody that much authority over my life. I'm the authority of my life. I choose what I choose. I do what I do. I make my own choices and I'm willing to live with them. That's at least intellectually honest and very short-sighted. Because you're basing your life on your own wisdom. You're basing your life on your experiences and your feelings. And those all have a place in the kingdom. God never says, enter my kingdom and lose what you feel. Lose your emotions. You'll see people in worship throwing their hands up to the skies, crying out to God because they know how good he is. There's emotion in the kingdom. But it's an emotion that's based on a relationship that's healthy and good and alive. Other people don't stick with Jesus because uh, they don't want to be troubled with difficult teaching. It's hard. Being a disciple of Jesus is not an easy life. It'll cost you your life. Some feel uneasy about the issue of their sin. They have no problem admitting that they've sinned, but they hate being called a sinner because comparatively, they're better than most. And so if Jesus were grading on the curve, they're good. He's not grading on the curve. He's grading on the truth. And so some don't want to follow Jesus because at the end of the day, they just don't like, they don't deal with themselves as a sinner and so they don't have a need for a savior. Some feel uneasy about the choices. Like God's kind of gotten out of style, you know? He's been around so long that some of the stuff he wanted us to do really doesn't just make sense to me anymore. So I don't want to follow an authority I can't respect because you haven't experienced the truth of it. I can go on and on on this. For most of us, the reason we walk away from Jesus or have chosen in the past to walk away, too many risks involved. I don't know that I trust him that much. I'd have to surrender too many important things to myself, so I'm just going to come to church. 
and I'll plug in every Sunday, and it's good for my family, and overall, it's, it's pretty sound. But at the end of the day, I'm, not, I'm coming to church. I'm not coming to Jesus. Now, and may the church repent if the ultimate goal is to get you here on a Sunday. The ultimate goal is to get you, as you travel toward Jesus, to have a community of people that love you and help you and grow you. You see, the call to believe Jesus is the call to believe him every single time. So that's what he was telling the crowd. The reason you have a problem with my teaching is because you don't really believe I, I am who I say I am. And so I'm going to demonstrate that to you. How did he do it? Well, he died on the cross, and then I think something happened a couple days later. We'll talk about that in a minute. So we know why people walk away from Jesus, but let's talk about how does Jesus satisfy? For those of you that are willing to long haul follow Jesus, to not just walk away when it gets hard, to not walk away when there's questions, to not walk away when doubts enter your mind, and instead of remembering who he is and what he's done, we turn on to the doubts, we listen to our culture, and we walk away saying, it's just kind of an antique religion, I'm not sure it fits today. So how does Jesus satisfy? Well, he saw the crowd walk away. Like I said, it was a minimum of 7,000 people, and now he's down to 12. I've preached some horrendous sermons. You've heard some of them. Never had 7,000 people walk out of here going, I'm done. So it's probably not his top sermons of all time, except he did it on purpose. You see, he didn't chase them. My father asked me one time, he said, have you ever noticed what Jesus did every time the crowds walked away from him? And I was like, no. And he goes, look it up. So I took a week or two and was flipping through the Bible just occasionally trying to remember what's the answer because I knew he was going to ask me again. And he said, what did you find? What did Jesus do every time the crowds walked away from him? And I said, I don't know. And he goes, he did nothing. He didn't chase them. He didn't beg them. He didn't say, I'll change the truth so you like it. I'll make you feel better about yourself. He said, if I love you, I'll tell you the truth. And I've told you the truth. He didn't tell it in a harmful way. He just simply knocked them off the throne of being God and relates to them that they didn't know what they were talking about. So in the third question he asks them, first one, you remember, does this offend you? The answer is yes. Second question is, what if I showed you who I was? Would that change what you, how you lived? And the third question he asks is, are you leaving me too? The crowd walked away, and Jesus looked at him and go, why are you still here? Verse 67. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered, now notice, If you've been attending here for long, we make fun of Peter because Peter says all the things we're glad we didn't say. This is one time he got it right. Well, one of several, but this is a big one. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who through the one of the twelve would later betray him. Peter said, we know. And Jesus said, no, not all of you know. You believe in what you see, but you have not invested yourself in what you believe. And there is the difference of what the resurrection must do to us. The fact that Jesus is raised from the dead must move us from believing it happened to allowing it to happen to us. Church, are you with me? I could have said that one sentence and you'd all be eating deviled eggs right now and like me more. Because that's the sermon. Believing he was raised from the dead does not change the fact that you may not be raised from the dead. And if Jesus is raised from the dead and he's offering you a path to be raised from the dead, do you want to be raised from death to life? It's the challenge. I love Peter. He says, to whom shall we go? Who else can offer you this joy, love, hope, power? 
See, they couldn't quit on him because they had experienced him. Look at verse 69 again. And we have believed and have come to know. Epigenosis. It's a Greek word. It's used throughout the New Testament. It's a word that means super knowledge, experiential knowledge, not just in your head, but in your hands and your feet and in your eyes and in your memory and in your soul. It's experiencing something. It's watching, you know, there's a difference between watching someone eat a good piece of prime rib and me eating a good piece of prime rib. One is knowledge that that looks really good. The other is, oh my goodness, changed my life. Are you with me? When the resurrection becomes a, wow, good for Jesus, Instead of a, wow, good for us, then we've misunderstood Easter. Peter said, we know, we've experienced it. I can't walk away from you. And sometimes he wanted to, but he couldn't. His faith had become sight. What I'd like to do in close this morning is I'd like to end where I began. What if I could offer you four things that I believe every single one of us want and can only be found in him? and can only be found because of the resurrection. So let's begin. Jesus offers a hope that doesn't run out. Are you with me when you hear the news? When someone comes up to you with those horrible words, did you hear? And you're like, no, so-and-so passed away, or so-and-so's got cancer. Did you hear what's going on in the news? Did you hear what's going on in Washington? Do you hear what's going on in Korea? Do you hear what's going on in Russia? Do you hear what's going on in Afghanistan? Do you hear, do you hear, do you hear? Do you ever want to scream like I want to? It's not supposed to be like this. This is not what life should be. We have ruined everything. Nobody gets along. Everyone's grabbing for what limited power there is in the world. Everyone's sequestering themselves from community. Why is it like this? It's just bad news and bad news and bad news. And what are we supposed to do that? We're supposed to look to the good news that's found in the resurrection of Jesus. A hope that cannot be taken from us. A hope that is not just wishful thinking. I hope it gets better. No, that's not hope. A hope is confident expectation. Because of what he showed me and who he is, the power that he displayed, and what he did by walking out of the tomb, I realize there is nothing that is testing me right now that is anything more than temporary. Are you with me, church? There is no fear I have that he has not already solved. There is no test I'm undergoing that he's not already passed. What he did in the resurrection, what he did on Calvary, and then through the resurrection in the empty tomb, means that I have a hope that cannot be taken from me. Isaiah 42. This is about Jesus. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout out or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. Do you hear what he said? He's going to be gentle, but he's going to be true. He's not going to crush the broken, but he's going to make the broken strong. And he's going to bring justice into this world. And every time our, height, our hearts cry out, it shouldn't be like this. Jesus said, it won't be for long. How do I know he can do that? The resurrection. Not a power that's held by the rich or the beautiful or the famous or Hollywood. It's none of that. It's not by military power or might. It's by the one who walked out of the tomb and says, I walked out. Do you want to walk out? a hope that doesn't run out. Jesus offers a joy that doesn't lead to shame. I want to be brief on this, but this is important to me. There's a lot of things that bring us happiness and pleasure. Some people call it joy. I think there's a difference between happiness and joy. You can have joy in any circumstance. Happiness is totally conditioned on your circumstances. 
But we not only want hope, but most of us want pleasure. Why? Because there's so little hope that we just want to feel good now. And so many people are trading in their fears for, for numbing pleasure. And Jesus offers you a joy that doesn't leave you shameful. Most of the things that we do that get us through the day are things we'd never admit to anybody we do to get us through the day. We just simply hide it in shame and in darkness. We lie, we protect it because we don't want people to see that without hope, it's tough to have real joy. But Jesus comes in and he says, I don't want you to have buyer's remorse. I don't want, to, I don't want you to wake up every morning saying to yourself, I can't believe I'm doing this over and over and over. He wants us to give us a reason to let him live in us and to bring a joy that doesn't bring shame. Look at Psalm 19. The precepts, this is the, the teachings. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. This is what Peter was saying. He said, I've experienced what your truth offers me. Why would I take anything else, a counterfeit? So Jesus has come to say, I want to satisfy you. And we have a tendency to go, okay, here's the three things you can do to satisfy me. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. I'm going to satisfy you. And the only way you'll understand that is by giving me your true faith and your obedience. In John 16, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and murdered, he would say these words to his disciples, knowing what was coming the following Sunday morning. Now in your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Do you want a joy that brings no shame? Do you want a hope that doesn't run out? How about a love that doesn't pretend? How about a love that is honest and truthful and wills your good? This is one of the greatest misunderstandings of Jesus in the American culture, is that Jesus has been relegated to a moralist with old ideas. He's just a simple rule keeper, and he's constantly busting our chops and dissatisfied with us. And that's not the Jesus of Scripture. You watch the way Jesus healed people. You watch the way Jesus loved people. You watch the way he went to those in community, and he spent time with them. And you won't find someone with antiquated ideas. You'll find someone with refreshing ideas. But I want to tell you the difference between Jesus and every other world leader is that Jesus offers a love that's predicated on who he is, not what you do. And if you get nothing else, hold on to that. Jesus does not love you because you've earned it. And he does not choose to not love you ever. And we've all earned that. Jesus loves us because of who he is. And his love for us is not conditioned on our behavior. It's conditioned on who he is and what he came to do. See, the crowd wanted food and Jesus said no, not because he was angry. And not because they were stupid, because they needed more from him. The Pharisees, the religious leaders came to him and said, do it our way. And he said, no, not because he wanted to prove them wrong, but he wanted to show them that they had missed God's heart in following the law. The disciples wanted more power and positions. And Jesus said, no, not because he was mad at them, because he said to them, no, real power in the kingdom of heaven comes by serving, not by lording over others. To love someone it does not allow us to settle for less than they're supposed to be. Let me explain love on an Easter Sunday morning. It's what some of you parents will do today when you look at your children and say, no more Cadbury eggs. And they will think you're the spawn of Satan. I know they will. But you're going to say, okay, no human being can survive two Cadbury eggs. Stop. Eat some protein, a piece of bread, go for a walk, do something. Why? Because you're cruel? No, because you love them. There has to be a limit with love, or it's not love, it's just permission. And Jesus put 
limits on us because he knew how we were created. He knew what satisfied us. He knew what was good. Now, he doesn't take away all of our pleasure. In fact, he gives us pleasures we can't even imagine. But he loves us enough to tell us no. Look at Psalm 25 with me. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. I want you to pause as you look at that verse with me. He's not saying I've earned it or love me because I'm doing better. He says, forget what I'm doing. Love me because you're good. And that's what God promises. Love won't pretend that all is well when it's not. So he's offered us a hope that will never run out because there's no threat to the resurrection. He has a joy that won't lead to shame because he only he can fulfill us. A love that doesn't pretend, it teaches us truth and holds us to it. And Jesus offers a promise proven by power. I want to conclude this morning by talking about this. How do we know that the hope, joy, and love that this preacher is talking about on Easter morning is real? And I only have one evidence for you. The resurrection. The only way that that hope, love, and joy can exist if someone greater than our circumstances actually cares about us and is willing to do what it takes to protect us. Because of the resurrection, his words have life. Because of the resurrection, his life gives us life. Romans 6, 5 says, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. The resurrection is the, is the reason I'm a Christian. Now, I only say that to say, it says nothing about me except that I have been graced in my life to have been taught well to have been held to a higher standard and to have been challenged by people that loved me to, to find the evidence of Jesus and seek it for myself. I was never told to go to church, but I find the church is useful after I've come to Jesus. I find the church doesn't have a lot of value to people if they don't come to Jesus first. The resurrection is the reason I'm a believer. It's the cause of any hope I've ever had in my life. It's the cause of any real joy I've ever had in my life. It's, it's the cause of things that have gotten me up in the morning when I failed so desperately, my wife or my kids or my church or, or, or my friends, and I've, and I've just sinned and failed and I haven't done enough. The thing that gets me out of the bed in the morning is not that I'm going to have a better day. It's that through the hope of the resurrection, God can fix what I shattered. Without the resurrection as evidence that God is bigger, all we get is a good man who lived a perfect life and I can't. But when he walked out of that tomb and he looked at me and he said, do you want to do this too? If you came to me today and said, hey, I saw your grandpa. He's alive. I'd be like, good for him. Can I have some of that? Because death scares me. But knowing that death will be a moment followed by an eternity where hope, joy, peace, and love are promised. And how do I know that's true? Because of the resurrection. I want to be very gentle with this, but I want to talk with you in reason today. The world says today, well, all religions are the same. Are they really? The Muslims will tell you that Muhammad told him that God talked to him. Hmm. Evidence of that? One man's testimony. Some people say, you know, Buddhism's the same thing. It just gets you to enlightenment, really? Because people say it helped them. That's the reason you're going to risk it and invent your life around that. Because some people say this works. Or the humanism. You know, humanism is simply put and oversimplified, but humanism says we'll just fix it ourselves. That if we have enough government, we have enough money, we have enough resources that we can fix the world's problems. Huh, that hasn't worked yet. The agnostics believe that God's not involved at all. They, they can't see God in creation. They can't see God in the miracles of Jesus. And they just refuse to believe that there is, if there is a God, he's not really engaged with us. 
But I'm telling you to be a Christian. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. That's all you need to know. Buddha's dead. Muhammad's dead. They remain dead. The greatest philosophical teachers and advisors of our world, which were good people who aspired to good things, they all died. When Jesus died, the whole world thought, oh no, another one. Then he walked out of the tomb and they went, oh no, the one. The reason we celebrate on Easter the resurrection is because it changed everything and it changed me. Jesus said, what if I went back to where I came from? What if I demonstrated to you that I am exactly who I told you I was? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He said, I will rise in three days. And what did he do on the third day? He rose. Nobody else can offer you that. That's why his hope, his joy, his love, and his power are available. Just because he raised doesn't matter unless you allow him to raise you too. This is not about becoming a disciple occasionally. This is about choosing to follow the one who was resurrected from the dead forever. That's what it means to be a disciple. If you'd like to know more about that, I'd love to have coffee with you. I won't pen you today because there's some good ham and deviled eggs to be eaten. But don't you walk out of here today going, I'll think more about this. Answer this question. If he proves to be who he said he was, what should you do with that? The resurrection is the thing we think about because it's the difference between him and everyone else. That's why he's the only way to the Father, because he's the only hope of resurrection. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.